One Hope Church. Morning. We're good on the mic. Excellent. Um, hope everyone's doing well this morning. I'm glad everyone is here. Chet asked me, um, kind of spur of the moment this week to to preach because he'll be in the Atlanta Christian Brethren Assembly. Um, he's over there this morning um, talking about Mexico and because they're sending some of their people over to, to Mexico as well with them. So um, he was asked to, to speak there and so Chet asked me to fill in for him today. So a little bit short notice, but that's all right. So um, this morning we'll be in... 1 Samuel chapter 29 and 30. Bear with me this morning um, as we study this passage. A lot of this is going to be, you know, a lot of the Old Testament is, is really narrative-driven stories, um, but there's always lessons we can learn from each of them. Uh, so I'll draw some things from the lesson. There's always, as, in, as typical with Scripture, there are always limitless um, lessons and applications often we can draw from several sections so um, what I preached this morning may not be all-encompassing in fact is not all-encompassing so um, always always advocate studying the word yourself and checking what is preached with the word yourself and also um, seeing if the Lord has something new or different for you um, so let's begin this morning with prayer we'll lift up Chet as well as he uh, preaches and We'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Um, God, we thank you for this body of believers who comes to worship you and glorify you. Um, we pray that your word would move in power this morning in our hearts, that we'd be willing to listen um, and have open hearts, um, that you'd work through me and that your words would um, be life and truth to us. And Lord, we pray for Chet as well and family as they are over in Atlanta and just pray that your word would go forward there. And in fact, we pray for the gospel as it's preached um, throughout the world this morning, um, that, it'd be, that it would be um, powerful and that it would move in people's lives and that many would come to know you this morning. Um, work in our hearts to help us to follow you closer, um, and um, we just thank you for this morning. In your name, amen. So we'll start with just reading chapter 29. Um, remember here, it kind of transitions, a lot of First Samuel transitions between Saul and David. Um, here we're transitioning to David where, or I guess we're continuing the transition from Saul to David where David um, flees from, uh, from Saul to the Philistine lands to seek refuge um, from Saul's constant pursuit of him. Um, verse 1 says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands. Um, let me stop there and set this up a little bit more. Um, so David went to the Philistine king, Achish, that's how I'm going to say it, um, Achish, Achish, um, who gave him some land in a, in a place called Ziklag, um, gave him refuge there. And so David and his uh, followers have been set up in Ziklag and has been raiding um, enemies of Judah, but has not been allowing anyone to live that he's been raiding, um, kind of uh, so that he's not 
And then he's telling the king that he is raiding enemies or raiding Judah. So uh, the king believes that he's doing some good work for the Philistines, and so invites him to join uh, the Philistines in their campaign against Israel, thinking that David is um, has turned against Israel. So now we're in chapter 29, and they've all gathered their forces. Um, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands. And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And and Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the men back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he becomes an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to the Lord, to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong wrong in you from the day you're coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel, where they would then battle with Israel later. Um, Some interesting points here in in chapter 29. Um, Some of it's kind of humorous to me. Um, So it is easy, I'll say, um, to pass judgment when reading Old Testament things about whether or not someone is being disobedient to the Lord. Um, So we have to be careful and make sure that we're looking at exactly what the the Word says. Um, It doesn't say explicitly that David fleeing from Israel and going to the land of the Philistines, the enemy of Israel, is necessarily disobedient or sinful. Um, doesn't explicitly say that, um, but it is strange. I mean, it is certainly odd that the future king of Israel, and David knows that he's going to be the future king of Israel. He's also been delivered out of Saul's hand countless times by the Lord. So to, I guess, it's easy to sit, sit here and say that, you know, David was being disobedient and fleeing because he was being, you know, fearful of Saul and not trusting God to, to protect him. Um, you know, it doesn't explicitly say that, but it does seem that way. Um, but what it does say is that, uh, or I do think it's fair to say, the Bible doesn't say this, I do think it's fair to say that it is odd for David to go and camp with the Philistines. Um, and Chet did make a point last week where typically when David does do something and he inquires of the Lord or seeks, seeks the Lord in doing that, the Bible says it, and it does not say that he does it in this case. 
Um, Chet made that point last week. So um, it's a, I think uh, David probably is acting in fear here. And he lives 16 months in Ziklag. He lives at the Philistines' lands for 16 months with his two wives and um, his 600 men and their families. Um, so I think it's, it's, I also think it is safe to say that I don't think David's motives were to ever actually join in the, Philist- join in the Philistines' campaign or in their motives. I mean, I think that's pretty easy, safe assumption. Considering in chapter 28, he says that he, like, he lies to King Achish by raiding the enemies of Judah, but not leaving anyone alive so that the word doesn't get back to King Achish. And he says, tells him that he's raiding the enemies of the Philistines. So I think it's pretty clear that David, he kept his motives under wraps um, and clearly deceived the king in that regard. So I think that that is pretty clear that David has not defected to the side of the Philistines. Though in his time in Ziklag, it is interesting the relationship he forms with the king Achish. It is a, an interesting relationship because King Achish says some pretty good things about David. He says some really, really nice things. In fact, I wish my coworkers would say the same thing about me. You know, so he, he really does. And, and it doesn't, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about how David feels towards Achish. So I'm not, it's not clear whether or not David felt the same towards him or felt any kind of kinship towards him. But the king definitely felt some towards David. Um, so even though he's like the, this enemy of Israel, they kind of develop this weird bond. Um, so through that that same old that old uh, saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, kind of thing. So they do have a friendly relationship to some extent, and the way that David carried himself around the king clearly impressed the king. Um, clearly impressed King Achish. Um, some of the things he says, he says, from the day he defected until saying this to the Philistine army, or the generals, as Shish says about David, from the day he defected until today, I found no fault with him. And then again he says, as the Lord lives, you are an honorable man. I think it is good to have you work with, working with me in the camp because I found no fault in you from the day you came to me until today. And then the last thing he says about him is, I'm convinced that you are as reliable as the angel of God. Those are some pretty high statements about David. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. So I think that's a good example of how David carries himself around people and the leader that he is. So on a, on a small note there, you know, we should strive um, and pray that the others, other people around us who interact with us have a similar opinion of us. You know, seek that we, we should um, hope that other people view us as honorable people, as um, people as honorable as the angel of God, um, as reliable as the angel of God. Um, you know, frankly, Achish may have been deceived here. Um, and I think the Philistines were probably really wise in rejecting David. Um, and that's where we'll move on to here. So I know Achish had a high opinion of him, but it definitely didn't dissuade the fears of the Philistines that David reta- would retaliate and return. In fact, they definitely allude to a lot of different things here. I, I like when they say, uh, they say, you know, when David defeated Goliath, he cut off Goliath's head. And Goliath was like the Philistines' premium soldier. Like, he was their ultimate fighter. And David cut his head off. And uh, one commentary I read, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it's, 
it would be kind of ironic that David was still carrying around um, Goliath's sword, which is kind of funny. And so I just imagine David walking into this camp of the Philistines with Goliath's sword on his back or something, and all the Philistines, like, seeing this. Um, you know, that's not in Scripture or anything like that. I just thought that was an interesting commentary. Um, but they do allude to the Goliath's defeat by saying, what better way could he regain his master's favor than with the heads of our men? And that's pretty directly like he cut off Goliath's head. Why He may do the same thing to us. So... Um, and then, of course, you know, they have the, the saying, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They've heard that, too. So I think the Philistines were very wise in, in sending David away. Um, and I think the Lord, I mean, the Lord has his hand in all things. You know, he's, he is overall, and uh, he does weave, in his, uh, weave and, and manipulate um, through history. And I don't think manipulate is probably the right word for that, but uh, he does have his hand in it. And I think he actually ended up sparing David um, because there weren't really any good outcomes here for David. I, I think maybe he, he saw there was, but in retrospect, I mean, there were really three different outcomes, and you know, we can't necessarily limit, limit it to that. But you know, either David was actually going to fight against Israel, and I mean, I, I think that is the least likely scenario that was going to happen, um, considering we know... A good idea of David. We have a good idea of David's motives. So um, that was one option. The other option was David could have defected and fled from battle. And I just, I mean, again, that's not really how David works and his men work. So that's probably a doubtful option. I think the most likely option is that David was going to turn and fight against the Philistines um, and aid the battle against, um, aid Israel and their battle against the Philistines. Um, but in doing so, he had this weird, this interesting bond that he developed with Achish, and Achish had showed him such kindness in allowing him to live in the Philistine land, even giving him land um, that the Israelites used to have and the Philistines took back. So even in giving him land, like Achish has been very generous to David, and if David had chosen to fight against the Philistines, he was, you know, their, their regiment were fighting alongside each other. He would have had to have fight against this, this ally here. Um, so I think that, you know, I think the Lord saved him from some sort of dishonorable action in any way um, in, in return, having this outcome occur. Also, David did not know what was going on back home. David and his men had no idea what was happening back at Ziklag. And, uh, so the Lord definitely had his hand in this, and you can still see how he's guiding David's life throughout the t- his time. Um, so we'll move on to chapter 30 here, uh, where we find out what is going on back home um, or at camp. So 30 verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. 
David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, Two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a, young, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing. Whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Basor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people he greeted, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is... for. As his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from the day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was those in Bethel, in Ramoth, of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in 
Or Ashan. And okay, in in Athach, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. <clears throat> all right. So back to the begin- beginning of thirty. What what a tragic scene that David and his men returned to. And and you know you can sit here and imagine it when they first come over and have view of the city and it's on fire. You can imagine the horror and the the fear and, and worry that they had. And at that time, you know, they didn't know that their family had been captive. They're probably thinking their family had been slaughtered. Um, think of I mean just the emotion and the, the fear. And this is after a three day march. I mean these guys have marched they went, you know, three days to battle with the Philistines and then were rejected there and then marched three days back. You can imagine how tired they were and frustrated. And they return home to find their worst fears. Um, you know, the entire company, this is 600 soldiers, begin weeping. Um, they begin mourning. And uh, unfortunately, they start to do what many people in crisis and in tragedy start to do. And they started to blame. They needed this something to fix their emotion on. They needed something to fix their anger and their frustration on. Um, and so they started to point the finger at David, um, who is their leader. And they just really needed a reason for their suffering. Um, but what does David do in this time of, of frustration and mourning? Uh, and again, this is where the scripture is very clear. He turns to the Lord. He seeks the Lord for counsel. And so, obviously, when the men get to the city, they can see, obviously, there are no bodies. So, I think it's pretty obvious that they knew. It's pretty easy to tell they had been captured and not slain, um, providing some hope for them. So, I want to pause for a minute here and, and uh, talk about, first off, the impact of disobedience to God. So, two main points here. The first one is this. Disobedience to God, which is sin, has long-lasting and far-reaching consequences. It affects you and those around you. And what I mean by this is that your sin causes people around you to stumble or they miss opportunity to grow closer to God. You know, when you're, when you're living in sin or struggling with sin, your mind is distracted. You're not thinking of the things of God. You're being very selfish. Um, and so... Not only are you sinning, but you're also missing opportunities to share the gospel with other people. You are missing opportunities to invest and to develop a relationship with other people. Um, Sin has really far-reaching consequences, and you never know how far that ripple effect can go. In this case, Saul, King Saul, was supposed to have uh, eliminated the Amalekites. Like, the Amalekites shouldn't even be a thing at this time, because King Saul was... God commanded King Saul to eliminate the Amalekites. Had King, had King Saul been obedient, of course, a lot of other things would be in better order. But if King Saul had been obedient to that command, this would not have happened. This would not have happened in the way that it did. David would not have, and his men would not have returned to find the city burned and all their people and possessions gone. Like that's, That would not have been a thing. And the interesting thing about this is, King Saul, chapter 31 
which you, you, I'm not going to jump ahead too far, but that is occurring at the same time that David and his family are, is returning to find his family gone. So King Saul never even knows. He never even gets to find out that this occurred. So my point in that is saying that we don't know the effects that our act of sin have. We won't know. We don't know what that ends up leading to. Um, but I guarantee you it, it happens. Um, because of Saul's disobedience, it caused a lot of grief and suffering for other people. So remember, let us remember that our sin has a greater effect on, on, all, those, on all those we encounter, and it has even a greater effect on the closest people to us, our family, our closest friends, our church even. Um, you know, our individual sin affects one hope. It affects one hope. It affects how we approach open time. It affects how we are in house fellowship. It affects the clarity of mind that we have when um, sharing the gospel. Um, it affects how we can participate in, in, our, in our church. So sin has serious effects. And I think it's easy a lot of times in this day and age to fixate on the grace of God, which is by all means important. But we also have to remember that sin has some serious consequences and serious effects. And just to, to know that you're under grace doesn't excuse your sin. And so we can't live in sin and, or dismiss the severity of sin. Like it, it's even easy just to be like, to, to think, oh, if you're saved, to think, oh, I'm, I'm saved, I'm under God's grace. It's a never-ending battle against sin, which it is. That you, you're never going to be perfect until the day we meet Christ. Um, but we can often use the excuse of grace to really just minimize the consequences of sin in our lives. So we need to remember that. Um, and chapter 31 gets even more, and I'm not going to go into it too much, but um, the sin of Saul affected his children and his family, and they lost their lives because of it. Like, that's pretty severe. Um, now, Saul had a long life of serious disobedience to God that led to this, okay? So I'm not, not saying that your sin is going to, you know, lead to something like that. Um, but my point is that sin has, we need to treat sin seriously, and I, we need to aggressively attack sin in our lives um, to er eradicate it, to remove it, to eliminate it, so that we can be fully effective for God's kingdom and for those that we love, that we can encourage them and lift them up, and that we can be fully effective for the gospel. I'm obviously preaching this to myself, too. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to hear sometimes because, especially, you know, life is so full of ups and downs. Um, you know, we can find ourselves in really bad state of mind, state of uh, mind sometimes, and really start to ignoring the sin that's in our lives, and instead of addressing it as we should. So, um, this morning, let's try and think on that and, and actively pray against the sin that we know we fall prey to so often. Um, let's actively fight against it because um, ultimately we want to live blameless and holy. And unfortunately, um, to my second point, unfortunately, you know, life, living life in a sinful world, it ends up bringing a lot of tragedy that is not explainable and that we can't understand. It brings difficulty in our heart's break and trials come that seem to have no purpose other than just to inflict pain on us and suffering. 
And uh, we have to remember where to turn in those difficult times. And for believers, we've got a benefit. I mean, I don't know where you would turn if you didn't know Jesus. Um, you know, and I'm not going to sit up here. And, I'm, not, I'm no psychologist. I'm not a counselor. I don't have those skills um, with that training. And uh, I, I can't give you suggestions on a, how, to, how to cope with grief um, or other sufferings. But I can tell you that there is no greater peace or comfort that can be known or provided by, by God. Um, I, let me rephrase that. I can tell you there's no greater peace or comfort um, than that that is provided by God. And it's no... God is not surprised at grief. When sin entered the world, he knew that grief would be um, heavy and that many, many people would, would suffer grief, um, especially his followers. And that is why Scripture is so full of encouragement for those who are grieving. It's everywhere. I mean, you can even Google it, and I bet you'll find, I mean, I did, you'll find like tons and tons of articles on people who've been like the top 14 verses or the top 20 verses on grief. I mean, and they're all different. Like, you can click on each one, and they're, so, I mean, there are tons of verses on grief. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying, and, and I think we know this, but it's still important to rehash um, I'm not saying that God cures all woes. I'm not saying that he takes away all pain. He's not like this magic pill. Um, and I think we address that often here. But it doesn't just go away when believing or, or trusting or, or seeking the Lord. Um, and, in, and in fact, believing in Christ, I think, really makes... As a believer in Christ, you're going to encounter more grief than not believing in Christ because your eyes are going to be open to the sin of the world. I mean, there's a grief on a greater scale that you end up experiencing as a believer. Because um, whereas before where your eyes were hidden and you were, you were blinded, like you wouldn't grieve about your neighbor not knowing Jesus because you didn't either. wouldn't be a big deal. But now as you, when your eyes are opened, I mean, the, sin, the world is a broken place and your eyes are open to sin. And I mean, that should break you. That should break your heart. That should break you that this world is, is a terribly broken place and is lost without Jesus. And from a personal experience, I get off on a tangent here, I'm sorry. From personal experience, I joined, I'm a, I'm a police officer, and I joined to like have a good impact on the world and, and potentially like change the lives of people I encounter. And if there's one thing that I learned as a cop is that there is not a thing I can do to make this life better. Not a thing I can do. Even taking off some bad dude off the streets who's causing a lot of harm, dude's going to be out in a week doing the exact same thing. Like, there is nothing that I can do by, on my own strength or even through my occupation that is going to change the way the world is. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus is the one who can change, literally change 180 degrees the lives and hearts of those that I encounter. And... That, that was a really big awakening to me. Um, but in the darkness that I live in, in the darkness that I work in, I promise you the only thing that can change that is Christ. It's not some welfare program. It's not some, you know, and not saying those things are bad. It's, it's not a policy in a department. It's not, you know, a, a great organization or a, a homeless shelter. Like, those things are all good. I'm not saying they're bad. They all have their purposes. 
but them by themselves are going to do nothing for the sin in this world. They're going to do nothing for the suffering and the grief in the world. It's not going to change. Um, Christ has to be the center of it or nothing will happen. Um, and it'll be this continued cycle of, of frustration and challenge. Um, but being a believer in Christ, it, it does bring the most joy and the most peace even amidst the trials and the suffering. Um, Christ is the one who provides the strength to face these challenges. And one of my favorite scriptures um, I have several scriptures from Psalm that I'll read here. Um, One of my favorite ones is Psalm 23, which I know is really popular. It's very popular. Um, But we can't just discount it because it's spoken so often. And we can't just push it away because it's memorized so much. It's important to know, and that's why it's a popular scripture. Um, I'm just going to read it. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David wrote that. Psalm 34:18 The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You know, in, in a sense in a sense even for us to receive salvation, we have to be brokenhearted at some point. We have to really understand the grief that our sin causes. And so um, he saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147:3 He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And then if you've done the 40-day challenge recently, um, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's a promise. Those who mourn will be comforted. God, it's, it's so evident and it's so clear that God cares deeply for those who mourn and will draw near to them if they allow it. The word, as I've said earlier, is full of encouragement to those who suffer because God knows life is full of suffering. David's life was full of trial and suffering, and that's why so many of the Psalms themselves are about God's comfort during grief. I mean, if you're, if you're struggling and you're suffering and you're upset, just open this to any Psalm and just start reading, and within two chapters you're going to hit something that strikes a chord with you. And this makes sense, that God, God cares deeply for those who suffer. Because no one knows suffering more than God. No one knows suffering more than God. God's creation turned on him. He created um, humans who were sinful and disobedient. He created this perfect existence, and we rebelled. And then we didn't stop rebelling. It didn't get better. It's only gotten worse. He selected a people, the Israelites, who turned on him over and over and over again. And God recognized this sin and then sends Jesus, his only son. He sends Jesus to die on the cross 
for our sin. He sent Jesus to pour his wrath out on him instead of on us. He, had to, he turned his back on his one and only son. God knows grief. But the awesome thing about it is that because Jesus died and rose again, because Christ defeated death, because he received that, that punishment for you and me, we have this hope that is without suffering, that is without grief, that is without struggle and trial. Because Jesus died and rose again, we have this everlasting joy. And that's really what, what, what is joy. And I've, I've had such a hard time like, articulating exactly what joy is. And I, joy is like we have this promise and this hope that one day, even if we're not happy now, that one day we will be permanently peaceful and happy. Like one day that is going to come. And that's what joy is. Joy is even, you can be sad and be joyful. You can mourn and be joyful, knowing that one day the future holds a promise of peace. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because we know that suffering is only temporary. We know who holds our future. And one day he will heal all things. I know I bring the scripture up a lot, but I mean, we have a promise in Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And the only catch to that is the promise is meant only for those who trust in Jesus. The joy, this joy, this hope, this God that comforts those in need is only available to those who place their faith in Jesus. And so to witness and to experience the ultimate end of suffering and the everlasting joy to come, it immovably requires redemption through Jesus. It's not, there's nothing, no wiggle room there. There's no other way. There's no other philosophy. Jesus, if Jesus is not in your heart, the mourning only grows more severe. And what's awesome is that this, that one little requirement, which is important, is wholly and entire, entirely deserved by King Jesus. It's ultimately deserved. Because he died for you. Because he paid that punishment for us. Because God came in flesh and dwelt among sinners. Sinless God came and lived among sinful people. You just have to believe in Him to receive these promises. Otherwise, you still owe your punishment. And you know, in the case of chapter 30 here, you know, there are a lot of other narrative points I could make. Like, I mean, I think David himself learned an incredibly valuable lesson not to leave home undefended. 
And, I mean, I think he learned that lesson in leaving 200 men behind and not forcing those who are exhausted to come with him. He left 200 behind to protect stuff and then made a decree that their job is just as important as those who went and battled. Like, those are, there's some other little points like that I can make here, but um, to continue, you know, in the case of chapter 30, it really ends well. Like, it really does. It ends really, really well. Um, David, at the word of the Lord, musters his men up. They pursue the Amalekites. You know, God gives him assurance that this is going to happen. It's not like he, it's not like he went before the Lord and prayed and said, what should I do? And then God said, well, you should pursue, and left it at that. God was like, you should pursue because you're going to win. Like, he gave that promise. And, you know, they find the Amalekites celebrating. I don't think, you know, they, I think it was, uh, I think it was two more days they pursued, or does it, I can't remember. Anyway, they pursued for several more days um, after their already long journey to return home. So they, they were exhausted, not to mention weeping and mourning totally removes everything out of you. And so they pursue them. I, I have a feeling that the Amalekites probably didn't expect anyone to re- get to them so quickly. Like, I think they had probably done their thing, gone home, and, like, it was the immediate celebration before they could set up their defenses again. And they caught them by surprise and attacked them and and won. They got all their families back. They even got more than they had before. That's not necessarily always how our suffering ends. It doesn't always end that way. Um, But... I will say that if David had not sought the Lord for this for direction in his moment of crisis, it definitely wouldn't have happened. That would not have ever happened. I can say with 100% certainty in the case of our eternity that it will all end well for those who know Jesus. Christ should be the center of our lives. He deserves our obedience. And just as a quick recap before we close, and I encourage us this morning to attack our sin, be aggressive against our sin. And that's, I mean, that's hard because that means admitting your faults. That means digging to find out where you're sinful because there are probably sins you're committing that you don't even know. So it requires asking God for your, uh, to reveal your sin and then asking God to help you change those things. And he's always faithful to do that. He's always faithful. He needs, all he needs is a willing heart. And then let's turn to God. Let's turn to Christ when we suffer and when we mourn. Because He is the God of peace. He's the Prince of Peace. And He knows what we need. And He'll take care of us. And we can do so with this future hope and joy that one day there will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain or sorrow. So let's praise him this morning as we go into open time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Um, God, we come before you again and we just praise you for who you are and how much that you love us. And, And God, it's amazing that your creation has put you through so much grief and yet you still love us. You didn't turn your back on us. You didn't turn and leave us to our demise and to our suffering. You loved us so much, even though we caused you so much grief, 
that you came and died for us. You paid the price for us. King Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. For the payment of a debt that we could never repay. We were lost in our sin. We were lost in our transgression. And you came down and made a way for us. Lord, we pray that this morning during our open time that we would honor you and we would worship you and that it would be pleasing to you. God, as we go forward and live, um, you would help us to eradicate the sin in our lives. (laughs) Just as David was eliminating all those tribes, the enemies of Judah, and not leaving one single person alive that could get away and... um, Tell the king about it. Let us eliminate every sin that we encounter in our lives aggressively so that we can be fully effective and that our relationship with you is unhindered. Draw us near to you, Lord. And God, when we encounter trials and suffering that we can't really explain, we can't put a finger on, we don't know why it happens, help us draw close to you and draw near to us And Lord, I pray that you'd comfort us with your great peace and with the assurance of joy that comes with salvation in Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd bless this morning and meet us here in Jesus' name.